Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Aspire and Inquire. Today, as always, we have another amazing guest on the show. This time, it's two guests. Our first episode with two guests on at the same time. I'm very fortunate to feature two doctors, Dr. John Cole and Dr. Sarah Schmidhofer. I am so excited to feature both of them. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, this is going to be great. I'm really excited to speak with you two. Thanks for having us. So I will start by giving a brief introduction uh, about both of you, both incredibly impressive backgrounds. So John, you received your bachelor's, master's, and MD all from UPenn. Uh, Some of your prior experience includes being a resident physician, as well as an assistant professor at Brown. You are currently the medical director of behavioral health at the Children's Institute of Pittsburgh a telepsychiatrist with Ginger and Iris Telehealth, as well as a psychiatric consultant for the Providence Community Health Center. So an incredibly impressive background there. And Sarah herself as well, with a bachelor's in cognitive science at, uh, cogn- cognitive science at Berkeley, a post-baccalaureate pre-health program at Columbia, and you received your MD at Brown. On top of all this, uh, prior to receiving MD, you received multiple certificates to be a yoga teacher, which is incredible. Some of your experience has included being a staff psychiatrist at Rhode Island Hospital, and now you're currently working at UPMC as a staff psychiatrist, as well as an associate medical director at the Center for Integrative Medicine. Wow. Sounds like a mouthful when you put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it just shows how much you both have accomplished. It's very impressive. So that that covers, I mean, I think most of your both your professional careers. Is there is there anything else you would like to say uh, regarding introducing yourselves? Well, I guess it might be worth saying that we are also a husband and wife team. So we sort of have sort of seen each other being trained. We both trained together at the same uh, residency. And then we have a little bit of different practice. So I am um, an adult and child psychiatrist. So I have seen a little bit more variety of ages. And something that I think is a huge part of Sarah's practice and why she's at the Center of Integrated Medicine is she is a teacher of yoga teachers. So she is certified and uh, is quite expert in mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. And so that's one of the reasons she's in sort of her role. So I think we have some very similar and overlapping training, but also some unique perspectives. Well, and I think the reason John brings that up is because psychiatry is a very broad field and there are a lot of different things you can do with it and a lot of different directions you can go. And I wouldn't say we're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but we certainly have different pieces of the puzzle. Absolutely. And coming from different backgrounds, it's really helpful, I'm sure, to our audience because what it shows is there is no straight path to the same career. Or or I guess a better way to phrase that is there are many possible paths to get to the same destination. Yeah, I think we certainly embody that uh, dichotomy. So I was someone who um, was less creative in my life course and it went from um, undergraduates directly to medical school and then right into um, a, uh, my residency program and then right out into jobs as physician, whereas Sarah can talk a little bit about her path, which is a very common and potentially the majority of I actually don't know if it's, I was actually thinking as you were speaking about my medical school class and what proportion of people went straight through 
like John, that's the term people say, they say straight through when you go college medical school residency without a break. And what proportion took some time off? I would say it was probably a third of my class that took some time off and the rest went straight through. Interesting. The, yeah, some of the, some, I mean, I think the average starting age for medical school is closer to 23, 24. And so if most college graduates come out of, you know, I think it's very common. And it's so funny, it's that it's called, you know, it's called a break, right? So the, the language in, in, in between high school or college is taking a break, but the types of experiences and uh, real life exposures and finding the elements of passion, rekindling your interest in, in education, I think is, is a reason that so many people do that. It should almost be like, there should be a better word than break. I think a really interesting place to start is to talk about your differentiated career paths and how you got to, to where you are today. So John, how how was it going straight through the academic path to receive your MD and you know, not, I mean, of course, getting some work experience along the way, but going straight through school for however many years, I mean, it's incredible. So how was that whole experience? Well, I think um, the things that, you know, were helpful for me were trying to use the, the high school and college summers to explore other interests and sort of uh, narrow it down. So I didn't feel as much like I was doing one straight path. So I spent one summer <laughs> videotaping baboons like in Brookfield Zoo in Chicago and animal research. I spent another summer wondering if I wanted to work in politics and, and, and being in uh, then, then Illinois Senator Barack Obama's field office. And I spent another one basically just scooping ice cream and playing a lot of softball. And so I think having an opportunity, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to explore these other interests and sort of find, you know, I'm still thinking about doing work with providing care and seeing at that point, I was very interested in primarily providing care for children. And, and so it just sort of, when you would adventure and explore other areas, if you f keep finding yourself coming back, it was, it was clear to me that I wanted to get doing that as soon as possible. So I had the good fortune of staying at the same place. So uh, that sort of made it so you just kind of walk to a different part of the, the university. Mm -hmm. So that I think helped with with sort of the feeling that I just got to keep going. And, and when we think about it, in other, other countries um, and places around the world, you know, medicine is something that you might enter even sooner, like 17 or 18, you enter a seven-year program or um, you sort of track in uh, earlier. So it's not, it, it, it worked for me, but I knew many people that were so glad that they had times that they gained other skills and experience. Being able to go through your entire academic career all at the same place and one of the best universities in the world, of course, UPenn. That, I mean, that must have been, it must have made things a lot easier. Uh, I guess you could say easier as, as easy as it can be going through that much schooling. How many years in total were you at UPenn? Um, so I think that would just be four. Uh, the master's program was great because you could sort of um, squeeze it in uh, like a half a course every semester of medical school, and then you had a master's too. So, so it ended up being eight years for the four for the undergraduate, and then four for the medical school and the master's in bioethics. It was a nice integrated program. We will definitely talk more about that, but uh, of course, we should move on to Sarah and ask about your differentiated path. So, started with your undergraduate at Berkeley, and how. Did it progress from there? How did you get to how did you get to where you are today? Well, so for me, 
my primary interest wasn't medicine in the forefront. It was the brain. And that's why I studied cognitive science um, in my undergrad years. And there's a lot of different ways to work with the brain in terms of careers. And you can be a teacher, you can be a researcher, you can go into medicine, you can go into therapy, psychology, neuroscience, all different areas. And I was not feeling like I was in a particular hurry, unlike John. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I had an inkling that I wanted to go to medical school, but I didn't do it right off the bat. I toyed around with research a little bit. And then I found I got sick myself with Lyme disease, which was a real trial for me. And during that process, I sort of butted up against the limits of Western medicine, I'll say and started looking at more sort of complementary modalities like acupuncture and meditation, yoga, nutrition, things like this. And for me, meditation ended up being one of the most powerful healing modalities I had come across. And so at this point, I was pretty sure I wanted to go to medical school, but because medical school teaches Western medicine pretty much exclusively, it seemed to me that because this other modality had been so helpful it was the responsible thing to do to learn that also. And so that's when I went to yoga school. And that was an incredibly important experience for me. I would say even almost more so than medical school in some ways, because in yoga school, they teach you how to live and they teach you how to be and how to think and how to assimilate experiences in a way that allows you to have your own boundaries. And that was really important to me going through medical school and residency and now as a practicing psychiatrist, because we interact with a lot of pain on a daily basis, pain that's not ours. And having the yoga training under my belt sort of makes it easier for me to allow pain to exist without absorbing it all myself. And so that was a crucial part of my own training. And as I've moved through medical school and residency, I went to Brown University, which is a great school academically, but more important for me is that they had a program in what's called contemplative studies. And that's basically studying the mind and different contemplative traditions, which means essentially meditation in its various forms. And so I've been working to integrate meditative practices into medicine right from the beginning of medical school. And those have been my interests. And that's why I'm now working at the Center for Complementary and Integrative Medicine over at UPMC in Pittsburgh. That's incredible. And it's so interesting. The more and more I learn about healing, the combination of Eastern and Western medicine that has become the main solution for, for a whole variety of of let's just call them issues in general. So it's very interesting that you bring in that complementary uh, form of practice into your work, which, which from what I've found is uh, it seems to be way more successful. Yeah. You know, it seems to be that nobody has all of the answers <laughs> and in, at least in the United States, we specialize so, so much. And, you know, it's not exclusive to the United States, but I feel like we could all benefit from taking a few steps back and broadening a little bit. Absolutely. I think one thing to potentially add on is that part of the different paths and journeys is sort of looking at yourself in the mirror and the things that are sort of your strengths as well. Um, you know, we have different styles in how we approach problems, <laughs> big and small, whether it be sort of 
I would want to do it as fast and efficient as possible. And Sarah would want to fully understand the problem and really take a holistic approach. And so that sort of mimics the, the path and is also why, you know, for any listener out there who is sort of wondered if ever wanted to uh, approach mental health as in any sort of capacity, as a potential patient, as someone who's recommended for a friend, there is a really important part about fit and figuring out who's going to be lining up your, you know, has a similar ethos and spirit, because that's, I think, really important to mental health care as well. Your skill set is and perspective may actually dictate your journey to wherever you want to get to. So that is, that's a really great point to make. Thanks for saying that. I would like to ask, what is psychiatry? And I feel like both of you will have maybe a different perspective on how you would even define it. But uh, let's start with Sarah. Sarah, what, how would you define psychiatry? Well, the way we define it to our children is <laughs> being a doctor of feelings. And I think, you know, that's a very simplistic way of saying it, but it's not quite being a doctor of the brain because neurologists, neurosurgeons also study the brain. Um, but it is sort of uh, being a doctor of emotions and feelings and how you grapple and handle emotions when they become too big. So, you know, all humans have a normal spectrum of emotions, pleasant or unpleasant, and everyone for the most part feels the whole gamut of human experience, you know, sad, mad, angry, glad. And it's only when one of those feelings sort of goes overboard um, that it starts to become a problem that might require a psychiatrist. And then the difference between a psychiatrist and say a psychologist or a therapist is that psychiatrists go to medical school which means that we study the whole human body from head to toe, inside out, and we are able to prescribe medicines. And so it's not until we finish medical school studying all of the body systems equally that we then specialize by going to a residency dedicated to psychiatry or learning more about emotions and what can go awry. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's a really good explanation. I think that differentiation, many people ask about what's a therapist, what's a psychologist, what's a psychiatrist difference. I think that the doctor component means that we also think about how the body interacts with the mind and the, and the brain. You know, there are times, there are a number of below the neck uh, illnesses that can impact your thinking, your mood, your sense of anxiety. And so we have to sort of be comfortable with those as well as being comfortable with therapies or sort of um, skills with using coaching and understanding and helping align goals, as well as sort of some of the medicines that can be most helpful for various mental illnesses. Dumbing it down to a children's answer is probably the best way to do it because that shows you truly understand it. And that's what I found. If you can't explain something complex, usually means you don't know it. Uh, so thank you for that. And both of you have some experience with telepsychiatry. And this is particularly interesting, of course, now during the pandemic, I would love to know the pros and cons of telepsychiatry. And, and maybe if you, if you could also talk about the differentiated skill set that you might need to be a successful telepsychiatrist compared to one traditional in person. So um, maybe John, do you want to start with that? Sure. So, you know, th this was a sort of a, a change that almost every uh, psychiatrist has sort of had to make sort of uh, on a snap in March. 
Um, but even before then, there was a growing uh, field of telepsychiatry and had been particularly valuable for communities that had really rural or hard to reach groups. So Hawaii had a great uh, program and was known nationwide for their their kind of their network and how they developed and lots of places you know that needed to be a remote treater for one or two people, but you know would have taken a helicopter to get to and sort of already developed these ways to sort of interface through technology. It's sort of like an encrypted FaceTime or now it's sort of all we're comfortable Zoom where you could meet face to face with a provider who could be miles and miles away. As soon as COVID ramped up the need for that, the, the number of providers in the space has also increased in the number of interests because there's some real exciting features about telepsychiatry for particularly for, I think, the adult population. And, and so firstly, the ease of connecting with your provider becomes remarkably mm-hmm. changed, right? So you no longer need to be in a waiting room or figuring out how you're going to transport yourself there, you know, you, or am I going to take time off work? You can... Do I need to get a babysitter? I mean, the the things that we build in to get people to see doctors who then might be running some period late that extends your time away from your work, family responsibilities are enormous. And now those sort of melt away to being able to interface with your phone, your computer, um, in your office, in your car, in your, hope we always have them pull over, but that, that, there's, there's lots of ways that you can more quickly access care. You know, I, I like to say, I'm always interested in going to where the patients are. Patients are in their phone. People are, that's where they are. And so if we can reach them there, we can reach more people. And so what they can do through telepsychiatry is they position a camera. We tell them to find a private space for their personal information security. And then we begin the session. From a, a patient perspective, they just need to have a quiet place where they can feel comfortable. There are some different needs put upon providers, right? You know, you have to build rapport in a different way. Um, you have to feel comfortable looking at the right part of the attached camera or, or second screen or just your laptop so that you can try to give the patient their understandable sense that you're right there present with them, that you're trying to give them eye contact so that they can feel seen and heard. You need to, it, it, it's a little bit more challenging when you can sort of feel someone's energy in the room and, and, and lean in. And, and um, so those are, are could be a, a challenge, but if you can get past that and with our comfort with things like you know, Skype and FaceTime and how that sort of had already been an established part of our culture, I have found the transition pretty seamless and people have been able to really connect pretty quickly and feel as though they're someplace safe and someplace that they can share their vulnerabilities and their hopes. And then they can close the visit and go back to what they were doing. So I I think the, from an access perspective, it's a dramatic improvement. There's some strains when it comes to immediately keep the rapport. There's some strains with what happens when people are having emergencies is a little bit more challenging. But I think on the whole, there's a huge subset of patients and people that are just more willing to potentially try this out, which is wonderful, less likely to have obstacles that are not really related to their opportunity for wellness sort of melt away. And I think that's a really nice opportunity. So I I think it's going to continue regardless of what happens with this pandemic because the changes have been, I think, have opened some eyes that there's some real good. That's that's incredible. And and that's interesting to bring up the culture of 
I mean, American culture of understand the understanding of FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, all these software programs that we're now used to using. And because we've taught each other for what we don't know, it seems like uh, you said seamless from the provider standpoint. And I'm sure for the vast majority of consumers, it's probably the same from the customer standpoint. So a seamless transition to an unbelievably more efficient technology and care is pretty incredible. Sarah, is there anything you'd like to add on? Well, yeah, so so I I want to I want to let you but I'm wincing because I'm thinking about some of my patients who not good for this transition. Exactly. So, so I, I I mean so I've if you have somebody over 55, their comfort is really variable. Have they used it before? And so there's some people who really don't like that and had so much mm. history of, of going and seeing a person and you know really getting that handshake and feeling that connection and that's how they sussed you out. That's gone. Or if you're a a, a kid with you know, uh, special needs or an autism spectrum disorder, ADHD. How are you expected to stay engaged when I no longer have the ability to, to share a fidget toy with you? Or so there, there are certainly some challenges. But. Well, and then there's the subset of people who don't have a smartphone right. or a computer. Of course. Um, and there is a you know a, a decent sized chunk of people who need mental health care who really are quite disenfranchised or of low socioeconomic status. And so telepsych is really impossible for that group. Um, you know, some places have worked to make that easier and set up access points where someone can go to an office or a church or some other location and use the technology there. But while it's increased access for many, it's actually prevented access for some. So it's I think it's yeah. important to understand that piece of nuance. And the other thing I would want to add is, while I would agree that efficiency is improved, I don't know that effectiveness is improved. Interesting. Almost everybody's on time now, <laughs> doctors and patients alike. The no-show rate, the rate of people making an appointment and not showing up is incredibly small, at least in my practice now, whereas it was much, much higher when people had to come in in person. And so the efficiency of sort of the number of, of people you're able to treat and the sort of speed with which you're able to do it is definitely increased. But as John was sort of alluding to, the effectiveness may not be there in the same degree, right? We can still take a history, learn about a person and make some recommendations. But, you know, you're seeing someone from the neck up. And so mm -hmm. I can't see how you walk. I can't see how you move your body language. You can get a little bit, but sometimes depending on the lighting, you can't really get it. And that adds a lot to the picture, right? With psychiatry, a lot of it is what's spoken. And a lot of it is what is unspoken. And the unspoken piece is a little bit harder to get at through the telepsych modality. And I would also add that there's more distractions on both ends. So whereas when I see a patient in my office, I can silence my cell phone, I can mute my email beeping. I can't do that when I'm also seeing the patient on the computer because the sounds come up, the beeps occur, the pop-ups come. And it's the same on the other end. Patients are still getting phone calls. Their kids are knocking on doors. If, you know, during pandemic times, everybody's home. Sometimes it's hard to find a private space. And so it, it really is a mixed bag, even though I think many of us are enjoying many aspects of it. I think that there, just to add a, a data point, there's many cohorts that they have studied. And these are sort of things before COVID that to sort of prove uh, equivalency in some outcomes. But many of those studies are oriented around bringing the first, you know, evidence-based medicine. So, for example, for certain conditions, 
we really want to make sure that patients are being offered the first line medication and the first line therapy. And so the, the, this platform in, in telepsychiatry is often able to identify the problem, but make the diagnosis correctly and offer first line treatment. Sarah, with sort of her expertise, sees some you know, particularly challenging patients sometimes, or ones that are coming for a particular type of care. And so they, they might not, you know, may have some needs that are not necessarily best served from the telepsych space. And I have some of those patients as well. Kids can can FaceTime for a little bit, and then they're sending me messages on the Zoom chat about sort of like, I'm let me go, I'm gonna go get some Legos to show you. So you know, it, it's 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 different. It's different. That's very interesting to bring up. There's so many of those drawbacks that I never even considered. Of course, not being in the field, and I can't imagine there were courses in medical school on telehealth, right? I mean, there probably are now, but there certainly weren't when we were going through it. Right. And so how did you, was it kind of like building a plane as you were flying it and just kind of learned on the fly? Was that the only way to do it? So I I had the opportunity to sort of have two approaches, right? So I um, was working, at least when we actually recently moved to Pittsburgh. And so I was, in the opinion I first had, I was, had a part of the organization that had to just sort of improv on the fly. They had to find, they had no, no telepsychiatry service. So they had to sort of figure out a new video platform. It was changing every other day. Are we trying phone calls while some opening up a FaceTime or, you know, is FaceTime encrypted? Well, we were had to make a lot of changes on the fly and you were just sort of learning and talking with your peers to figure out what works. And then I, I joined two organizations that really had been doing this for a long time. So Iris uh, and Ginger, and when, when I removed, I had a little break in. So they provided some training modules and they sort of include things about where you're placing the camera and what are the things that are should be in the backdrop and how you should have the lighting and where you should position your body to try and most accurately recreate the sense of where pe- people's eyes would look in, in section. And so those sort of uh, coaching and support were wonderful. And I wish I had a, f- a few months more. So I think it's sort of a combination of of trial and error, but there are some groups that have been doing this for times before this became so widespread, and and they've been done a nice job of sort of disseminating this. There's a number of newsletters and. Stuff like but I'll also say, you know, it's not exactly like building a plane as you're learning to fly it, right? <laughs> it's obviously a lot less. The stakes aren't as high in learning how to use the computer program, right? But also the nature of medical school and residency is that what you need to do changes month to month, and so. I think many of us in the medical field are pretty comfortable with using a different uh, medical record and using different technology and altering certain aspects of the practice as we go while keeping the actual medicine part the same. And so it, to me, it was a transition, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Sure. And there was a statistic that I found uh, reported by Ginger actually that said the usage of its, text-based mental health coaching was up 159% and its virtual therapy and psychiatry was up 302% compared to pre-COVID averages. The the numbers themselves, they're not that surprising, obviously, but I would love some insider insight. You've talked about some of the drawbacks, but of course there's all also many advantages. Once, once the world is back to whatever the new normal is going to look like, will these numbers or, or numbers similar to this continue? I know you both mentioned that it's here to stay to a certain extent, but is it going to be widespread and prevalent or 
kind of the alternative if you can't go in person? I think it's a great question. I think one of the big deciding factors will be insurance payments. So once the coronavirus hit, state governments and across the board had to make this decision about what they're going to do about people wanting to contact their doctors and try and uh, reduce the risks of transmission. And so almost instantaneously, a number of states, if not all states, you know, I, I can't quantify say all states, but many just sort of said, we approve all of these telehealth billing codes, which means you could call or video chat and a, a provider or a, a employer of a provider would be fully compensated. So it's equivalent to a in-person visit. That opens the floodgates to do this because the operating costs, if you're not having a physical space, are remarkably different, right? But when the world reopens, these legislators and insurance companies are going to have to look to see, is what we're paying for working? Are you know people getting better with these platforms? Do we, do we worry that causes there not to be as, as meaningful encounters? And, and they might start to limit some of the things that, that its uses are for. And I think that will potentially cause the healthcare market to react to that. I think there will be pressure from both sides to keep it. I think overwhelmingly patients and physicians want to keep it as an option, even though, as John's saying, the scope will likely be more limited. Yeah, definitely. I make That definitely makes sense. And it's going to be interesting to see how insurance companies and these legislators react to maybe bringing costs down, making it a part of plans. I'm not familiar with this stuff at all. I'm not going to try to um, even sound half intelligent about it, but it will be interesting to see how it develops. Uh, and I guess, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, just to, for, if, if it's of interest, for example, there was a law that said you could, you could not send controlled substances, certain substances that have, are ones that are at risk for abuse. So certain medications, we, you know, we know about the opioid uh, epidemic in the country. So that would be considered controlled substances. Ones are called benzodiazepines or these sedatives or ones that are sort of um, ones that are more energizing or are in the family of what's called stimulants or Adderall or Ritalin might be known of those. So those are, and others are part of what's called controlled substances because they can be misused um, and to sort of keep their prescription in a safe pattern. There had been a widespread law that said you had to have at least seen person once in person to prescribe that. So that was a big change that, you know, that was how telepsychiatry had been. And so there were, it was, it would really restrict some of the practice of any clinicians that would be prescribing those medicines. COVID happened and that sort of got wiped away. That one law would dramatically change. You know, if we think about that five to 8% of children at this point in the United States are diagnosed with ADHD and the primary treatment for those are what controlled controlled substances. That's a huge uh, cohort um, that would then at least require their first visit to be in person. And so that changes the t- the uh, telepsychiatry language in just one loss. That that must have changed everything. That must have changed the entire game. And regarding being a psychiatrist, Sarah, why why do you love it so much? Oh, it's a great job. It's a wonderful thing to be able to sort of be honored with the privilege of hearing people's inner worlds and things that people aren't comfortable sharing in other places. Being led into people's pain and trusted with their heartaches and their neuroses and their worries and their fears 
it's it's very humbling, honestly. And to be able to help with even a little bit of that is incredibly rewarding because when your brain isn't working the way you hope it would want it to expect it to, um, your whole world changes. And I think that's part of what I love about it is is being able to help people with something that feels so fundamental to their being. That's awesome. John, uh, why do you love being a psychiatrist? I think she said it beautifully. I just like the opportunity to be with people at one of their most vulnerable times. It's a great honor. And I think it's a unique fortune that we have some tools, not unlimited, but we have some tools to, to be helpful. And so to be given an opportunity to both be trusted and to see someone and understand their challenges and try to be helpful is a great is a great honor. And and selfishly, I just love learning about the human experience. I mean, that's such a human drive, but just to learn people's stories and um, everything from their big trials and tribulations to their tiny little hobbies, it just <laughs> makes every encounter special. That's awesome. That really is. Any any doctor during the pandemic, no matter what you focused on, truly a hero and helping in every any way that you can, I would most definitely say both of you are included in that. I mean, helping, I can't even imagine probably the uptick in clients in any number of reasons. You've probably seen more clients and, and probably helped so many people. I, I think the real thing, that, the, the thing that should be gone out is that none of the, this work for, especially in the telepsychiatry space, is possible without so many other people mm-hmm. that are making this happen. I mean, for us, we click a button and we get connected with the provider, but there's you know people running these platforms, making the appointment, reaching out to patients, you know, ensuring that they can pharmacists filling prescriptions. People make like it's so disappointing that we're considered the heroes when there's this whole infrastructure that requires you know. I just feel we're the privileged ones to sort of get to do this part of the work and and the rest of the system is sort of built around us to sort of make it happen. I think it's pretty cool for for us and we feel very lucky. Now we're going to get to the question that I ask every guest and it's been a really fascinating question to ask because everyone has such an interesting answer. Sarah, let's start with you. What is, in your opinion, what is the biggest misconception in life or career? Okay. Well, I think what I would say is that the biggest misconception is that you can find happiness or that aspiring to something will make you happy because we are all sort of programmed from a young age, many of us, most of us, to believe that we'll be happy in the next phase of our life. We'll be happy if only we had a partner. We'd be happy if only we had kids. We'll be happy when we get that job, that promotion, that house. And what I've found time and time again, both in my own experience and by you know, being privy to the experience of so many others, is that that is very rarely the case. And happiness only comes when you choose happiness. I don't mean to say that as in, oh, people who are depressed should just choose to be happy and then they'll feel better because that that's different. That's a, you know, a clinical condition. What I'm more referring to is this Um, general unease that many of us experience. And I think the misconception is that happiness can be external. That is an incredible answer. I love that. (laughs) That's great. You're so right. Happiness is internal. You have to choose it. I love that. That's great. 
John, do you have uh, do you have a take on that? Well, I I think that's that's a, a lovely answer, and I'm sitting here as you ask, I'm feeling fortunate that I got asked second, but it doesn't mean <laughs> that I came up with something particularly unique. Um, well, I guess one misconception that I still am prone to having uh, myself as a avid and unabashed superhero advocate and supporter. <laughs> Um, I would always sort of align with the kind of Batman credo, you are what you do, right? So, you know, I would sort of always, in many domains, I was always about working harder, doing more. How can I do more on others? Give, 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 and, or, or do, 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 or do this extra thing. And um, there's always another thing to do. And um, many times the things that you think are going to matter are not the ones. And and this job that I've, you know, the psychiatry working with people of ages two to 95 from all different backgrounds and places in the world, the things that they find most meaningful or the things that you thought you were doing are not necessarily the things that they remember. You know, you think that you made this appropriate diagnosis and you gave this right medicine. And they just, I really am so grateful that you appreciated my, my, my frames or that you heard me talk about my mom who I miss so much. And so we often are look like do, looking just to do, 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 and check that next thing off the box of resume. You might miss the things that you're actually doing, which is being with somebody and being there for somebody. So it boils down to this conception, broaden your conception of doing. Just being can be doing something really important. That's another amazing answer. I mean, I know you were concerned about being second there, but that was another incredible answer. You guys are, that was probably two of the best answers I've received yet. So yes, wow, we're going to tell us each other. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and first of all, I would like to say, I think your kids are going to grow up to be some pretty special people just based on that. Those answers alone, I can tell you're going to raise them to be great kids. Well, we'll check in with you and, uh, <laughs> you know, dinner. My other quote about that is, is parenting is like gardening carpentry. You just do your best to sort of help it grow in, in the way that it wishes to grow. So hopefully our children choose to grow in a way that they really uh, yeah, happy but, to be. But I mean, there's all kinds of jokes about psychiatrists, kids. Yeah, you know, they're in trouble, actually. Messed up, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, they'll come home from work. Uh, they'll come home from school one day and you'll, you'll be able to figure out their diagnosis in seconds. Right. <laughs> or them, us. Or that, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe it's the other way around too. <laughs> this has been great. This is, uh, I really appreciate both of your times. And the last question that uh, I ask everyone is, what advice uh, would you two have for younger individuals looking to uh, become a doctor generally, or maybe more specifically working in psychiatry? Don't feel the pressure to go straight through. I'm the straight through guy that's that's here. And Holy mackerel, You're, when you graduate college, do something that's meaningful to you, not to necessarily build any resume. I had the great fortune of doing that in my summers, and and still there are times where I'm like, wow, that could have been a cool thing, or I could have gone abroad more. Or something. So my understanding, you don't get many shots at this planet, maybe just one. Yeah. Uh, so enjoy your, your time and, and find your own path. It does not have to be just following a yellow brick road, explore. I, I was going to say something very similar. I would say take your time because and make sure you really want it before you mm -hmm. go to medical school, because 
And we're sort of far away from it now, so you forget, but medical school was really, really hard. And residency was really, really hard. And when you go straight through, as, as John did, you lose a lot of those years of your life because you're studying, that's it. You're studying, you're in the hospital, you're sleeping, you're studying, you're eating. And so if you're not in a hurry, if you have the sort of opportunity to do other things, you know, work in another career for a while, study something, see what life has to offer before you make this decision because it's a long road and it's a hard road. And I, I don't regret any of it. I mean, I'm extremely glad I did what I did, but you know, I went into it a little bit later and I knew it was what I wanted. And I already had gotten to have time, you know, partying in my twenties before I went to medical school and started studying 24 seven. So I would, I would echo the idea of, of taking time to find your passions. I would also say volunteer to continue to kindle your passions. Cause that was something that was super key for me doing it straight through was, you know, when I think back to, you know, she's talking about medical school being hard. The thing that I think about was I just jumped to the dressing up like a clown at the children's hospital or, yeah. you know, uh, you did do that. Uh, or yeah. the various uh, clinics that you help people who had no resources. So as a second year medical student, you're still very helpful. That's sort of where you jump to. And that sort of powers the other work because when you have a sense of purpose and it, your passion is infused or, or lifted, you can carry through more activities than you expect. So I think even if you end up doing something totally different, keep stoking the fire if you think medicine's for you by getting involved in helping volunteering. Because I think not for from a resident component, from a, is this the spirit of where I wish to be? Um, and if you feel most at home there, you're going to make it through medical training and you're going to be happy you did. That is great advice. Great answers to these questions. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It was really nice to meet you. And I'm glad you're doing what you do to help other people find their passions. It's important stuff. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night and hopefully you can put your kids to bed uh, relatively easily. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Have a good night. Right. Same to you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode and make sure to share this with your friends. If you haven't done it yet, give us a follow on Spotify and Instagram at aspire underscore inquire to take on this journey with us. That being said, stay tuned to next Thursday because you will not be disappointed. Peace.